My name is Nathan Forster, and this is Deeper and Wider, a show where we meet at the crossroads of Christian faith and all of life, from the small to the big, from the mundane to the profound, where we learn people's stories and their specialities, have conversations, and offer perspectives, all of which are shaped and animated by Jesus, his way of life, and the kingdom he came to bring. This show will be a resource for people who, deep down in their bones, think that surely God's kingdom is deeper and wider than the box we have put it in, a kingdom that can permeate all of existence, if we allow it to. So welcome to Deeper and Wider. Apologetics. If you've been around church circles where there are people debating God's existence or looking into the big questions of faith, then you've probably heard of this word. For some people, the word evokes in the imagination people having rich dialogue about the big questions of life, faith, church, philosophy, and many more topics pertaining to God, particularly his existence, and in a good natured dialogue of wrestling with honest questions. But for some, this word, apologetics, evokes in the imagination people having petty arguments about God's existence, getting angry, not listening to those friends with sincere questions of faith and with sincere doubts, and having debates around secondary questions like how old the earth is. So, my question is this. Is apologetics inherently bad? Or are there ways of doing apologetics that avoid pettiness and getting into an us-versus-them posture? Is apologetics just a hang-up of the Enlightenment that's devoid of the deeper things such as beauty and wonder? Or is there a way, a place, for doing apologetics, these type of conversations around the big questions in a healthy way? And if so, can we still call it apologetics? How far can we go with our definition of the word? Well, that's what I'll be exploring in this episode and a range of other things around apologetics with today's guest, Justin Briley. Justin has been working in radio, podcasting and video for almost two decades. He hosts the unbelievable radio show and podcast on Premier Christian Radio, as well as hosts the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast. He's the theology and apologetics editor for Premier Christian Radio and occasionally contributes to other shows and podcasts from the London-based station. Justin was also the editor of Premier Christian Magazine from 2014 to 2018, which he continues to contribute articles to. Justin's first book, Unbelievable, Why After 10 Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian, was published in 2017. Personally, I'm an avid listener to Unbelievable, and I'm excited to be interviewing Justin on the topic of apologetics. So, enjoy the interview. Well, Justin, welcome to Deeper and Wider. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank you very much for having me on, Nathan. It's lovely to join you. Yeah, and look, today we're talking about apologetics, which on a personal level is a subject of mine that I have. Well, as I said, on a personal level, I've deeply connected with apologetics. It was actually part of my testimony. And so I thought to myself, well, I've been listening to uh, your show Unbelievable for 10 plus years now, Justin. So I thought, well, I'll get you on to my show and we can actually talk about the whole subject of apologetics. So it's yeah. uh, I'm talking talking to uh, the guy I want to chat to. So um, there you go. It's <laughs> wow. very kind of you to, to have me on. I mean, it, it's funny because... Uh, Every so often I do do these conversations that are more kind of meta about mm. apologetics, whereas most of the time I'm doing apologetics. Um, so so it's it's fun to, to, to think about, I guess, just the nature and scope mm. of apologetics. And because, as I'm sure we'll cover, it's great in some respects. But as I've discovered over the years, there are definitely limits to to what apologetics mm. can do as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's what I'm quite excited to to talk about as well, uh, both the strengths and the weaknesses. Um, perhaps before we launch straight into that, I just want to give our listeners a bit of a context of exactly who you are. And so 
I, I want to go right back when to when you were younger and ask the question mm-hmm. of what did the religious or spiritual background of your childhood look like? Well, I grew up in a Christian family. Um, and, and in that sense, you know, I was very fortunate to have a lot of Christian input growing up. Um, but obviously, like any kid, you have to sort of own that faith for yourself at some point. Um, and I guess mine was in my mid-teens, really, that faith came alive for me. And it was through uh, quite a sort of experiential thing, really. It was at a youth retreat that I went on where I really felt like I encountered God in a very particular way. Um, mm. And and the lights came on, really. Uh, I really felt like it was a big change in my life at that moment. Um, so it was one of those, you know, I, I had what you might call the kind of road to Damascus kind of mm. <laughs> conversion. <laughs> Not that I was a terrible, you know, case before that, you know, some kind of tear away. Yeah. You, you, you weren't the prodigal son in the more stereotypical no. sense of, of that. No, yeah. I wasn't. But, but nonetheless, I felt a very different person on the other side of that experience. And it, um, it did kind of, it was something I held on to for a long time as a sort of very foundational thing. Mm. Not that everyone has that experience. I mean, my wife, you know, is a good example of someone who is just a very gradual dawning awareness of God's mm. reality in her life. And, and, you know, everyone has a different story on that front, don't they? But, yeah, but that was mine. Yeah. And, um, and, and yeah, that, that kind of set me on the, on the road really to, to, to kind of taking faith really seriously, um, to pursuing God to, uh, and, and, but before long, you know, it did, did mean that I was confronting intellectual questions as well, especially once I went to university where, you know, mm. I was surrounded probably by a lot more skepticism um and and that was probably where i started to first of all engage in what you might call apologetics i i wouldn't have even called it by that name at that point but but that was the the starting point for me really it was this kind of teenage moment this experience that kind of grounded me in the start of my faith and and things went from there really yeah so there was this turning point for yourself in your faith journey and then by the sounds of it from what you're saying you then went to university and that's when you started to face some of these apologetic questions yeah I think it was um I met people there who challenged my faith more than I had than more than I'd met before that I'd say um and I guess at that point I I met people who were saying you know if I told them about this experience I'd had and and what Mm. faith meant to me they would say well that's great for you but I haven't had that experience myself um and then and then you have to I think start to, to to talk about the kinds of stuff that is available to both of us. So mm. I think that's when I did start to explore kind of some of the objective, rational evidences for Christianity that, that sometimes is what apologetics deals with. Um, again, th- th- I, I didn't have that name for it at the time, but mm. I was starting to read people like C.S. Lewis and, you know, his books, Mere Christianity, Miracles and others, and finding them a fascinating way mm. of kind of looking at the world and how you make the case for Christianity. So, so those, those kinds of things were quite in, informative in my life at that point, I would say. Yeah, no, that makes sense. For you, it wasn't so much you had this label of this thing called apologetics that you formally explored. It was more of a response to your peers that you were interacting with and mm. perhaps some of your own questions you started to face for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Though I was fortunate as well, both to have you know a church family that was supporting me at that time, but also many Christian friends that I met at university. I was quite involved with the University Christian Union, mm. so there. So I was no by no means facing these questions alone. Um, it was it was you know the kind of typical kind of time in 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 any young adult's life when they're starting to put the pieces together of life generally. And for me, that meant you know starting to look at what faith meant. Probably the most significant influence actually during university time on me was mm. meeting my now wife Lucy. Um, Mm. because we met at university she was actually studying theology um, with a view to becoming ordained in the church and she now is and has been a church minister for a long time Um, but because we came from quite different church backgrounds there was a lot of sort of coming to terms with an understanding a different way of approaching Christianity and God Mm. uh, a different kind of church sort of experience to mine I'd grown up in a very kind of charismatic evangelical background she'd grown up in a more main mainline denominational kind of structure Mm. and and so actually 
that wasn't the easiest thing, you know, actually sort of reconciling both our kind mm. of experience of yeah, right. Christianity and God. But having said that, um, I think I came out of that much um, a- actually a-, a far more rounded and bigger picture of Christianity mm. is mm. what is what I felt I took away from that. And that's actually kind of been my, you know, something that stood me done a good thing, you know, throughout mm. the broadcasting career I've subsequently had because I've increasingly encountered you know, over the years, that that big picture of Christianity that is much bigger than just the the particular version of Christianity I encountered when I was a, a young man. So, 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 yeah, it was a definitely a, a kind of a formative time those university years in in terms of shaping both my faith at that time and the direction that it would take me in in terms of doing unbelievable and that kind of thing. Yeah, and and I'm interested, perhaps, to to turn towards that, like. But perhaps before we do, I'm, I'm just cautious of some of our listeners. You know, we're talking about this big word apologetics. And even though you didn't use that word yourself when you were in your university days, um, nonetheless, I imagine some listeners are going, well, what is apologetics? So for those who might not know, how would you, I don't know, give your elevator pitch for apologetics? <laughs> <laughs> well, it can sound like you're saying sorry for something, can't it? The word apologetics. It, it, yes. But... <laughs> Um, but that's not really the case. It comes from the Greek word apologia, um, which simply means to make a defense of something. So uh, hmm. a, a barrister in a court of law might make an apologia, a defense of their client. Um, but of course, in in the biblical use, it's it's talking about defense of the faith. Um, it's what Paul does on the Oropagus hmm. in Greece when he speaks to the philosophers and the Stoics there. He's making a defense of the claims of Christianity. He's, um, so the apolog- apologetics is to make a rational intellectual defense of Christianity, essentially. And and it can both be a defense, but also, in a sense, an offense, uh, a kind of in mm. the sense of you can be defending against objections to Christianity, questions mm. around the problem of suffering. You know, can we trust the Bible? Doesn't science disprove God? Whatever the questions might be. Um, mm. Equally, it can be about making the case for Christianity. It can be providing positive arguments for God, for Christianity. Mm. Um, so, so that generally is what apologetics encompasses. Yeah, sure. And, and obviously not to get too deep in the weeds, but at least from the research I've done, and, and I'm sure that you've seen over the years, there's obviously many different schools of apologetics from all these big words like presuppositional apologetics, evidential apologetics. Mm-hmm. So there's it's certainly a, a pretty big world by the sounds of it. Yeah, absolutely. And and you could add other sort of forms and there's lots of different areas that it covers. So you will get apologists who are primarily interested in the historicity of scripture. That's their main area. You you will find people in the sciences and who, who are looking at it from that angle, people who almost exclusively focus on philosophy as a means to looking at evidence for God. So so there's lots of different areas. Um, I won't go into the deep weeds of presuppositional no, no, versus no. evidential apologetics. But <laughs> yeah, a little yes, bit too deep. <laughs> it, there's, there's a lot of different ways in which people kind of think about it. Um, and indeed, there are whole schools of thought, you know, which see apologetics as, as to some extent um, an unnecessary almost, you know, um, branch. Um, but um, yeah, obviously, I, I I do think it's an important thing. I, I've been running a show that debates uh, apologetic ideas for a long time, and um, and I think for some people, not for everyone, but for some people, it's been a it's a really important way in to faith and mm. bringing down some of those barriers to faith. Um, I would say so. So that's that was certainly my experience when I started to engage apologetic questions. It, you know, when I started reading people like C.S. Lewis and others. It just mm. sort of it lit a kind of intellectual fire inside of me, which was complementary rather than competing with the kind of experiential side of what I'd experienced. It kind of it, it, it kind of lit up the other side of my brain. You know, people yes. say we're, we're left and right brain, don't they? And and it, it sort of made sense to the logical part of who I was. Um, but as you know, I, neither should dominate over the other, in my opinion. Mm. And, and that sometimes is the the error that both sides fall into thinking that they're their version is the only way of, you know, understanding Christianity. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm even thinking about it in the context of my own story. I, I come from a Pentecostal church background and I didn't mm-hmm. grow up in the faith. Um, I just started going to this particular Pentecostal church, but it was actually apologetics that uh, helped get me over the line. It was a documentary mm-hmm. of um, 
Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Not to be confused with the movie, but the the documentary mm. that came out um, following the release of his book many years ago. And so certainly, even on the personal level, um, can can relate to it needed being complementary, coming into this Pentecostal community, but then also engage in the yeah. life of my mind, which served yeah. to, to produce a holistic faith, I would say. So, mm. And in terms of then... So obviously that's apologetic more from a 30,000 foot point of view. And you now find yourself in this world quite, quite intimate with it, with interviewing a variety of different people on your show, Unbelievable, and of course, other shows as well. Could you tell us how you got into that? That's just a, a particular point of fascination for me. Mm. Well, I, I, I sort of stumbled into it, really. Um, I got married to Lucy um, after we left university, and I knew that I wanted to do something in the area of journalism wasn't sure exactly what we went away for a gap year after getting married um where we served uh for the anglican church in a missionary station in namibia um for about eight months and while we were there the director of the charity came out to visit us as a sort of missionary couple and he said oh i've just been on this radio station in the uk called premier christian radio to talk about the charity would you like me to put you in touch which he did and so from from africa um I, I was in touch um, with the radio station and managed to set up just some work experience when I was due to arrive home again. Lucy started training for ministry at that point. I started heading into London just to do some work for this radio station. That turned into a job. Um, I started learning the ropes of broadcasting, journalism, interviewing. Um, and about three years in was when I went to the boss and said, I've had an idea for a radio show that could go out on the weekends called Unbelievable with a question mark, where you know how we always get Christians talking to Christians about Christian things, and there's a value to that. What if we got a non-Christian to come in to the studio and kind of have a conversation with a Christian once a week? And bless him, he said, yeah, let's give it a try. Yeah, um, great. And that's how the show was born 17 years ago, believe it or not. And um, that's... It was a bit of a brave move because actually it wasn't popular with everyone. As you can mm. imagine, there were lots of Christians, you know, it's a Christian radio station, Christian listeners, and a number of them, when they started hearing an atheist pop up, <laughs> having a discussion <laughs> with a Christian on a yes. Saturday afternoon, they were like, uh, we have plenty of atheists on the BBC. Thank you very much. Uh. We don't need them <laughs> on our Christian radio station, which I understood. Um but there were also lots of people who said, hey, we really like this. It's 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 challenging us. It's getting us out of our bubble, you know. And the fact is, here in the UK, and I'm sure where you are, yeah. you know, you don't have to go far uh, out of the Christian bubble to find lots of scepticism. And those are the people, you know, that people who are listening would be spending time around. So mm. so actually, I think the people who didn't like it learned to skip it on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> the people who did like it really enjoyed it. Um and I was very much learning as I went. I, as I say, um, mm. I soon learned that there was this term apologetics that was basically <laughs> was essentially what I was doing. Um, yeah, right. Okay. And I, and I quickly learned who some of the key characters were, some of the key thinkers, um, uh, managed to start bringing some of them on, managed to start bringing some of the key atheist proponents and people on. And the show really launched around the time when, you know, the the new atheism was reaching its zenith. The, the God delusion had just been published by Richard Dawkins. All of that was going on in the culture. And so mm. um, it was it was an interesting time. And, and in a way, I think the show really started to grow more as a podcast. We, a couple of years in, we started podcasting. We were quite early adopters. And mm. it, it was then that really we started to see this interesting growth of a non-Christian audience as well for the show. So still still yeah, was primarily right. obviously christians listening on the radio station but suddenly a lot of non-christians atheists agnostics listening because they were hearing on the podcast you know some of these well-known atheists coming on to to defend their point of view so so that that really kind of changed the game for me as to how i presented the show mm. as well because i couldn't assume that it was christians listening and it really impressed upon me the importance of trying to be as neutral and fair a moderator as possible in the discussions and mm. and I think that paid off in the long run. I think it it kind of helped to establish the show on a on a wider footing than just in the kind of Christian subculture. 
it, it helped to give it a kind of sense of respect and relevance to people mm. outside of the Christian church as well. So so that was really how it all began, you know, many, many years ago now. Oh, wow. Okay, then. And so, I mean, so you've been in this world for, for quite a number of years now. You've engaged in the multitude of these conversations. You've obviously hosted these conferences around Unbelievable as well. Um, so over your years in the apologetics world, so to speak, um, where have you seen moments that have displayed the strengths of apologetics? And also, where have you seen moments that have displayed its weaknesses? So I, th I think the strengths are when you do see it lighting people up in the way, you know, it kind of lit me up initially. Um, when you see people who maybe had only had um, one particular way of understanding Christianity, a, a very experiential one, you know, where I, it, it's all about having a moment, having an experience of God, that that's the way in which you can know God is is there or true um, is is through some sort of sense or feeling um, and people for whom perhaps they just never really had that kind of experience and they mm -hmm. struggled to see people around them who seemed faith just seemed to come naturally to them and, and it didn't for others uh, and and what I realized is you know God God makes us all different and actually there are some people for whom an intellectual rational kind of approach to God is just the way they're wired and mm. they maybe they're wired to be a bit more skeptical and a, a bit more questioning and 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 for them you know when i when i've seen those kinds of folks discover apologetics you know it's it's been like yeah it, it's been like suddenly christianity makes sense to them at last it, mm. it, it kind of it, it interacts with that side of their personality and who they are and mm. that, that that is a great one of one of the great strengths of apologetics is, is seeing people get fired up because they suddenly realize this this makes sense to me at an intellectual level this this is mm. the kind of way in which god speaks to me you know god doesn't just speak to people through you know nice supernatural experiences and lovely yeah. worship services god often speaks through the intellect through when they sit down mm. and read a book and they just feel like this is resonating with me this is sort of uh, and so on so so that's always wonderful to see mm. um and likewise um in the marketplace of ideas, um, you know, some of the most enthralling moments, you know, when I've been di di leading a discussion either on a public stage or in a studio, um, you know, when you see Christianity sort of uh, kind of standing up for itself, it, it can be quite gratifying and quite encouraging. Mm. You know, um, I think of, you know, when I, <laughs> I had a big conversation a few years ago where I brought on the actually a secular historian, Tom Holland, um, who'd written mm. a book called The Minion, look, basically making the case for the way cr the Christian revolution shaped the West and gave us mm. all our beliefs in human value and dignity and so on. And I had him on against a an atheist philosopher, A.C. Grayling, who basically takes exactly the opposite perspective and is one of, you know, quite a well-known voice, sort of very critical of religion and Christianity. And just to see those two people kind of standing toe to toe and going at it was quite thrilling and mm. fun and yeah. <laughs> like made you feel, you know what, Christianity, you know, it's it can stand up for itself in the marketplace yeah. of ideas. And that, I think, is great um, because sometimes you need that. And, and, you know, where a lot of people have been told that, you know, that by, you know, the whole new atheist thing, Christianity is just fairy tales and wishful thinking and everything else. I think it, it's 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 lovely when you do see mm. the intellectual core of Christianity on display in that way. So those are the strengths. Those are, you know, the ways in which, you know, apologetics can be really helpful for people. Mm. But of course, there's always a flip side to to that. And and there's always the, 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 you know, the chance that just as it can be a good thing to kind of build confidence, it, you can also have a kind of an overconfidence in apologetics. You can kind of get to a place where you're so, you know, you think that you can tear down everyone through just an intellectual argument or, you, you know, that, that somehow this is the answer to, to, to kind of um, introducing people to God and faith. Whereas, mm. of course, it's only a means to an end. It's just, it's one of the ways in which I think God uses. Um, but there, there, there is always the danger of a kind of an intellectual arrogance that can come with that. Mm. And I've seen that happen as well in apologetics, this assumption that as long as you have the best arguments, um, basically you can you can sort of force someone into believing something um mm. and and that you know 
that 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 comes with all its own problems um so so where there are the weaknesses i would say is when people assume that they can they can do it all through argument and evidence and just reason when actually we're a very complex set of emotions and psychology uh and when we speak mm. to someone we need to speak to the whole of who they are not just to that one part of their brain that that you know processes things in that rational analytical way mm. and too often apologetics can turn into a kind of a, a game of chess which is just about moving counters and defeating your opponent and not actually about winning the person um, mm. and and for me it's important that if you are into apologetics that you don't forget that this is a, a real human being you're talking with mm. and that ultimately it's not down to you and your arguments it's down to what's going on at a spiritual level as well there's there's mm. a kind of spiritual battle always and um we can get over uh we, we can sometimes be overconfident in our arguments when actually we need to spend as much time on our knees you know in prayer as mm. as, as sort of engaging in you know that facebook debate or that that online <laughs> skirmish or whatever we think might be yes. you know uh winning our case so so there's there's all of those issues as well um that that need to be taken into account that that apologetics isn't that's not the um the end goal if you like it's not about just winning arguments mm. yeah so for yourself these these both these strengths and weaknesses on one hand strengths around it being used in a way that recognizes the more holistic view of faith that includes the life and the mind as well as also paying mm. attention to certain people being deeply engaged with their mind more more specifically to that person and so seeing the, the strengths there and mm. also just having some level of street credibility in the public space i guess you could say yeah um in terms of christianity as 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 a religion and, and as, as a way of life in the public sphere but then also yeah. you've observed these weaknesses as well that people have had a certain level of, for lack of a better word, a certain level of arrogance, perhaps as they've engaged, mm. or perhaps miss the person um, yeah. in in the pursuit of engaging. Mm. Um, and I often wonder because, and this will segue really well to some of the concerns I've heard over the years. Because on one hand, um, speaking personally, as somebody who came to faith um, through apologetics, not as not as if it was just apologetics that did it per se, but more so that as a God using it as a particular instrument. I think for myself, um, it was this moment of recognizing that, oh, you know, I just thought to myself, oh, you know, there's actually some street credibility to this faith. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was already visiting my particular local church at the time because my then high school girlfriend dragged me along to the youth group. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so that got mm -hmm. me going on the more communal level, or as we mm -hmm. say in Australia, I'm not sure if you say it in, in Britain, but uh, flirt to convert is the, is it's a bit of the punchline that's often used. Um, so certainly there was that communal end of things, but yeah, for myself personally, asking these larger questions and uh, mm. not knowing where to look for the answers. It was just so satisfying to find out that there was at least, at least some street credibility. Nonetheless, as the years have gone by, I, I, I myself and other people I listen to, we have both both a love-hate relationship to apologetics, and I just actually wanted <laughs> to talk about it with you a little bit. Um, mm. I, I think probably the first thing that has often come up as a response um, on the more, I guess you could say, uh, critical end of apologetics is some people would say it's a very, almost a very hyper-modernist or hyper-rational or some people would use the word enlightenment approach to faith. Um, and some would argue that it's not, I don't know, being more ancient in a more slower, more contemplative posture, more existential posture to faith. Mm. Um, perhaps some people would say we need to focus more on beauty and wonder and in these type of elements to faith. Um, I don't know. What's, what's your response to those who say, you know what, it's, it's just super modern. It's super philosophical. It's hyper rational. Yeah. What would you say th to, th to that? Yeah. I, th I think there is a validity in that criticism because, if you go into apologetics assuming that 
the way to know God is through an analytical argument or a logical argument, then I think I think you've, you're going to be barking up the wrong tree um, mm. because uh, the reality is God as the transcendent ground, if you like, of reason mm. itself. You, it, it's, you know, you, you're dealing with something that, that goes beyond our, our kind of human ability to, to understand. And so there's a kind of a, an arrogance that would come with assuming that we can kind of understand God or, or reason our way to God in that sense. Now, mm. that's not to say God doesn't give us our reasoning faculties mm. and mm. therefore we should use them and, and we're meant to explore and think critically and, and everything. So it's, it's, it's both and, but mm. the, the idea that we can sort of simply use our, our reasoning faculties to kind of work it all out, to work out God would, would seem to, to me to, to sort of almost be like, you know, building the tower of Babel and thinking you can reach God through mm. our human efforts. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think there's something in that, that the enlightenment, you know, idea, the rationalism that came with that did kind of breed this kind of view that, well, we can now explain everything, you know, and it's where the science scientism comes from to some extent mm. is this idea that science can explain everything. Once we just can pull everything apart to its mechanistic nature, then we can sort of have a full explanation of everything. And, and, um, and in a way, apologetics is about actually responding to that idea and saying, actually, mm. no, you can't, uh, you can't understand everything that way. But at the same time, apologetics and apologists sometimes act as though <laughs> they could sort <laughs> of just, you know, through it, through an argument and through reason, sort of establish the facts about everything. And, uh, and, and then, you know, the game's finished, as it were. Mm. So you have to be very careful, I think, and you have to, 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 to be aware of that tendency. Um, and ex and just understand that um you know as some of those early church thinkers and fathers said um faith is you know i um i believe in order to understand you know uh, mm. was it augustine who said that um uh uh credo ut intelligam i think it was wasn't it and there's a sense in which actually faith is is something that goes beyond reason it's something that sort of comes to us in some ways mm. you know in a divine way Mm. um and it's not it's not that easy to sort of just sort of say it's it's just a case of using our reasoning faculties and we'll get there there's there's a sort of interplay between us and god and mm. creation that that's taking place and likewise as you say um there's all kinds of aspects of ourselves that are not you simply can't contain within a, a purely logical reasoning kind of framework um the way that we respond to music and art and beauty it, it mm. does you know it, it it's a different part of us it's a different part of our brain that's being engaged there's a bit different kind of sense that is is being activated there mm. and and even the the you know the most logical you know rationalists in the world when they listen to a Beethoven concerto they're not there mm you know, dissecting it for its <laughs> uh, mathematical qualities, even though these those may be there, um, mm. they're, 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 they're enjoying it in a way that, you know, is bigger than the sum of its parts. And um, I think just, you know, anyone who's involved in apologetics just needs to be aware that there's much more going on, yes. in a sense, in any human encounter mm. uh, with another human or with God. There's There's a sort of, there's a whole range of things. And I mean, one of the most significant conversations I've had in the last year has been with um, a brain psychiatrist called Ian McGilchrist. I don't know if you've mm, come across no, him. I've, I've um, read his. I've read some. Of, I've read one of his books. They're very large, but they're very good. Well, well done. <laughs> getting through it is is itself. You know, you could get a medal for that. His books are very very long indeed, but um, very influential. So the, I don't know whether the one you read was the Master and His Emissary, which is his best known mm. book. Um, mm, yep. But basically he he has developed this very interesting thesis that essentially you know the the two halves of the brain the two hemispheres um do kind of different things um mm. in a kind of evolutionary sort of capacity mm. um the left brain is all about dissecting and mm. pulling apart and looking at data and uh it's you know to, to use broad brush strokes it's the logical side of our our kind mm. of nature and our brain and the right ha hemisphere of the brain is about taking that data and putting it into the bigger picture, seeing a mm. kind of 
seeing things more holistically and putting mm. things together. And his thesis is that the way it should work is that the the left hemisphere is subject to the right hemisphere. It's the right yeah. hemisphere that dominates, and and because that's the way in which we actually see the totality of things. Yes. Um, yeah. But he says the problem is really since the Enlightenment, essentially, especially in the mm. West, we've turned into a left-brained culture where actually the left brain is 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 now in the ascendancy, and we we mm. treat everything and we think about everything in left brain terms, purely in a kind of reductionistic, materialistic boil everything down to its constituent parts and think we've got the full picture when in fact we haven't at all and we're ignoring so many aspects of of reality by mm. treating life in that way i mean that is a, an extremely like you know thumbnail oh, for sure <laughs> by understanding yes yes but, but i had him on for, i've had him on for a fascinating conversation on the last season of the big conversation mm. with um um neuroscientist sharon dirix who's a christian so mm. ian mcgilchrist wouldn't describe himself as a Christian, though I think he he has a particular kind of way of thinking about God that he calls mm. panentheism. Yes. But yeah. I, I, a lot of Christians have, you know, been following and very interested in his work because it seems to speak so deeply to this aspect of, of, of the fact that, as we've been saying, that we are more than just brains on legs. We, we, mm. we are people who need purpose and we need meaning and we need to make sense of things Mm. in a bigger way than just science than just mm. you know the kind of the what has often been presented to us as the materialist worldview that if we can just mm. understand what's going on at the molecular level then we can kind of understand everything and and his view is no there's much life is much bigger than that and and mm. we, we've kind of stopped as a culture seeing things from that right-brained way and and that actually faith religion god christianity specifically Mm. is the way in which we do that culturally yeah. we, we 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 put things together in a in a in a different way and so i think there's a sort of big lessons for the apologist in that mm. sense there to to say look it's great you know it, it's it's important that we do the kind of the reasoning and, and stuff but people are much um are a much bigger mixture of things than just the reasoning and the the logic and yeah um, whatever we do in apologetics, it has to serve. <laughs> if we're doing a kind of a left brain kind of work mm -hmm. in apologetics, mm. we we need to make sure it serves the right brained kind of approach to life, mm. because I think God often really meets people in that much bigger holistic framework. Um, yeah, a lot of the time, and and in my experience, you know, when I speak to skeptics, uh, whenever anyone does come to faith through apologetics, apologetics is never just the one thing mm -hmm. it's not like one yeah. argument took them yeah. to, to faith and do. there's always some kind of emotional or spiritual or psychological some some kind of additional story going on yes and yeah. working something out intellectually may have been an important part of that puzzle but rarely is it just alone that it's 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 all manner of other things are usually going on in the background mm. and that need to slot into place experiences you know that someone has that kind of push them in a particular direction um so i i think you know we we need to be humble about mm. how much apologetics can do and, and realize there's there's a lot more going on in the background mm. Mm. and i'm sitting there thinking to myself i wonder if this actually reframes what we even mean by apologetics whether there is a type of apologetics going forward that can have interlaced in it like beauty or even the arts. Mm. I mean, I, I'm, I don't know what your thoughts are behind that, but I'm excited about even going, oh, well, who's to say that apologetics, you know, has to be synonymous with kind of rationalism. Obviously you don't remove, remove um, love of God with your mind, but I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, oh, I wonder if like there's ways to even do ap apologetics through art or you know, apologetics mm. through, you know, kind of a more narrative apologetics or you know trying to interlace yeah. these things i don't know i'm just curious what your your thoughts would be even on i, th on something I think like you're that. right i i suppose it just depends how broadly you can sort of you know cast the word apologetics yeah, yeah totally um, yeah because at some point it's all about i don't know a, a bigger word might be just mission or mm, um, yeah evangelism yeah. or or but even those kind of tend to kind of be a little bit kind of very specific you you think of one particular thing don't you when you, you, mm. you mention the word evangelism it's basically telling people about jesus but of course 
when you're doing art or music or something else it may not have that direct effect you might not think of it as apologetics but actually if it's kind of opening someone up to the transcendent nature of reality there's mm. an there's a sense in which you are doing apologetics or evangelism or whatever mm. at, at just at the level that person needs at that point where you're just kind of opening up up maybe to the possibility that there's mm. more to life than just you know the material world and and that in in a sense is is I think an important if we want to call it apologetics that's fine but but that can be done in so many ways mm. Mm. it can happen through having a a philosophical you know discussion but it can absolutely happen through through art and music and nature and finding you know interesting ways of putting it together and of course the absolutely classic example of the person who did this so well was c.s lewis himself mm. who mm. obviously was a brilliant thinker and did you know what you would call classic apologetics through books like mere christianity and the problem of pain and other things but obviously it was really through his narnia stories and other works his li literary the way he mm. managed to to combine the beauty of storytelling and poetry and art with the christian narrative that arguably has brought many more people to faith uh <laughs> in in that way than than his pure apologetics books so i mm. i think there's a kind of um we we absolutely need that we need the people who can bring the thinking the intellect and the the art and the literature together and mm. i see some great examples of that happening today in fact i see more and more people who are combining those um, yeah okay in, in, in apologetics which is encouraging so i look at you know people who you know i think of like a holly ordway is um a convert from atheism to christianity and she mm. very much went on this sort of literary journey where she was engaging with the poetry of uh christian poets and you know the books of tolkien and lewis and others and and, and finding something in there that she was really attracted to mm. and so she went on this sort of intellectual journey along with the aesthetic artistic journey and, and it led her to christian faith and now you know she is a poet and a literary critic but also a great apologist and and it i just think that there's there's more room for those kinds of crossovers you know where mm. people are really doing interesting work you know across across the piece um so um so yeah i i i think there's a you know we absolutely should try to to do apologetics in that that wider way as you say mm. no it's it's exciting to hear of hear of projects like that and people like that as well. Because, I mean, I, I, even with my own story that I mentioned briefly earlier, like it was one of those moments where it was, yes, you know, this documentary was good, but actually it was more of the existential implications afterwards. It was much more poetic in nature, which at the end of the video or the documentary kind of sat there, I went, oh, if God has become a human, that changes everything. And it was just this moment where all of a sudden it was this more, how would I put it? Yeah, a deeply existential moment in, in a sense. So mm -hmm. it wasn't just the mm -hmm. content of the documentary. It was the moment of the implications became so personal. Yeah, And so all of a sudden the scope of kind of what I understood in that moment went beyond just the rational but included everything else. And, yeah, it's it's exciting. And to I think that's, that. that's where apologetics kind of does start to hit its limits because mm. – exactly as you say i mean in my experience you know you f f if if you're just dealing in in purely rational terms with a skeptic mm. say you you will always hit a point at which you know you can ne i'll always there will always be another objection that a skeptic yep. can reach for and and you you could spend from here to eternity kind of just going back and forth on the arguments mm. in the end if there's not a willingness for that skeptic to sort of want what's on offer, if they don't want mm. what's on offer at a kind of heart level, then, you know, no amount of a throwing however much apologetics at them is going to change that. And, and for yeah. me, that's like you say, it's because there is a, <laughs> there, there's a challenge at the end of that road. Um, mm. This mm. isn't just going to be about changing your mind intellectually on something. It's potentially going to change your life oh, if, yeah. if it's true. And, um, and so you, you have to be willing to, to sort of want what, what that looks like. Um, and if you don't want it, then as I say, I don't think you can just sort of argue someone into changing their heart. You can maybe get someone close to changing their mind, but the heart is a, is a different matter, you know?
Yeah, absolutely. It kind of reminds me of the story um, that N.T. Wright spoke about once when he sent his um, big book, um, I think it was called The The Resurrection of the Son of God. He's more academic, he's more academic mm. one. And he sent it to um, what was uh, one of his former lecturers at, at Oxford, mm. I think, mm. uh, who wasn't a Christian, he was an atheist. Mm. And he sent mm. the manuscript to this particular um, professor. And the professor responded mm. saying, brilliant piece of work. You, you've really laid out the case um, that given all the other historical possibilities of, of how the early church emerged, that yes, Jesus rising again from a dead, you know, it's a very solid case, very solid case. And But then he said, but I just choose to believe that there is another reason other than a dead man rising again from the dead. <laughs> it, was, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was this poignant moment of realization that you can only, as you said, take someone so far along the journey. Well, and and there's been some classic moments, you know, of equivalent stories, Mm. you know, as I've been hosting unbelievable shows where basically I think there is a case that for some people, you know, if they are already wedded to a materialistic worldview, Mm. then that is the lens through which they see all the evidence. And so no matter how much evidence you could Mm. potentially give for something like someone rising from the dead. Mm. it's all they're always going to prefer a naturalistic explanation mm. um i mean one <laughs> the classic example that comes to mind that i've mentioned a few times in in interviews is um the oxford chemist um scientist peter atkins who i've had on the show several times over the years he's he's one of the more um, dogmatic let's say okay. atheists yeah. out there and he he he's sort of almost to the degree that it's almost pantomime, and I think he knows it. He the way he kind of dismisses, in you know, very condescendingly Christians as you know lazy thinkers and this sort of thing. And and usually the people I have on opposite him are, are good natured enough to just sort of <laughs> laugh it off. But <laughs> yeah. I had I had him on with um, Hugh Ross, who's a Christian astrophysicist. Um, he runs an organization called Reasons to Believe in the US, and they were talking, you know, back and forth about some of these sort of mm. evidence for God potentially from the nature of the universe, the fine tuning of the universe, the, mm. the big bang, that kind of thing. Mm. And anyway, Peter Atkins was doing as usual. Oh, it's just lazy thinking and blah, blah, blah. And, and eventually I, I kind of said to P- Peter at some point in the conversation, look, is there any evidence that could move you slightly in the direction of thinking that God might exist? Mm. And he said, well, I, I'm not sure what that would be, you know? Well, I said, well, for instance, if um, Jesus appeared to you in this room right now mm-hmm. you know it said peter i'm real and he said oh well i put that down to having a brain malfunction <laughs> i was like oh, okay well what if the stars lined up and spelled peter i'm here it's me he said well could be alien technology you know um and and i said well at mm-hmm. this point any naturalistic explanation would would do over a, a kind of supernatural one uh, i said it isn't the case that you're effectively you've assumed your atheism a priori. And he said, well, mm. I'm not sure that exactly, <laughs> but, but I think it was an instruct. It was for me an instructive kind yeah. of little moment. And Peter yeah. Atkins is an extreme example. I, 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 I'm not saying this is the way all atheists think yeah, by sure. any stretch, but he, it did reveal that for Peter Atkins, at least he doesn't just need more evidence, it, you know, just throwing more evidence at Peter Atkins w- will not change his mind because yes, yes. he's interpreting <laughs> that evidence through a very specific filter. Mm, and mm. what something else has to happen to Peter Atkins for him to change his mind. And it's not going to be just throwing more apologetic evidence. Mm, at him. So, mm. so there is that kind of sense in which, um, you know, I, I really understand, you know, what you're saying there, that, that it, it, it's, it, you know, that there's a limit to that. And, and mm. sometimes something else is, is what's needed uh, other than, than apologetics. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the metaphor I've often used to people before is that, apologetics done well gives um, the Christian worldview some street credibility. But it's almost, then the picture I often use is this. It's like, now you see that there's not only one pile of towering books on one side that you know dismantle the possibility of Christian faith, but now you see ah, that there are a lot of really good scholarly books on this side. And then I often say, it's like, okay, but, but both are there and they both have arguments for and against and counter arguments and counter counter arguments back and forth from each other. <laughs> but at some point you're going to have to look at both piles and just, and I use the analogy of a trust fall. You just got to, you got to trust in a version of reality. Yeah. 
and that will lead you down a particular pathway. And even from an apologetics point of view, I often think to myself that, um, that all, everything, whether it be someone be an atheist, a Christian, a Buddhist, it doesn't matter, that at some fundamental level, we're all trusting in a version of reality we can't ultimately oh, prove. Oh, absolutely. And, I, and, I completely agree. Yeah. I, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, one of the, the chief lessons I've learned in doing mm. this is that we're all, we're all standing within a particular worldview. Yes. And it would be silly for any of us to claim that there was no trust or faith involved in that, mm. you know? Yes, exactly. And, yeah. and it, it, it irks me a bit when atheists say, <laughs> oh, it's Christians who have all the burden of proof on them. Because actually, when I do actually talk to most thoroughgoing atheists, they do actually mm. have a particular worldview that needs defending, that needs yep. evidence of its own. It's called naturalism. It's the mm. view that all that exists is matter and energy and the natural laws of the universe. Now, that may be true, you know, but you've got to show me why that's true because it's not obvious on the face of it. It's not, and there's all kinds of consequences to that view that don't mm. seem to um, jive with my experience of the world. Um, mm. And and you know, it's interesting because because when I've had I've had Tom Holland, this historian I mentioned on the show a number of times, and his interesting story is that that as a secular person, as a historian, it was really his engagement with the history of the ancient world, the Romans, mm. the Greeks, and the birth of Christianity that made him realize that even as a secular person, how thoroughly Christian yes. his view of yeah. life is, his yeah. his beliefs, his view on human dignity and rights and equality. He realized none of that came from the Romans or the Greeks or the mm. Enlightenment, really. It was all mm. really shaped by the Christian story. Mm. Um, and what's interesting is he's the things he's been saying recently are that actually the the atheists and the humanists you meet they're just as much basing their beliefs on a version of faith as christians mm. are you know yeah, a christian right. who believes yep. in the virgin birth and the resurrection of jesus he says you know well yeah they believe in a miracle but so does the humanist i meet he says they believe in this miracle thing called human rights that you mm. know they, they mm. say yeah. just <laughs> exist and have that you know he says there's and he's he says they've absolutely no foundation for saying that other than actually yeah. Christianity kind of gave them that belief. Um, and I, so I think every everybody is is kind of, you know, ultimately they've got mm. their own miracle, you know. Yeah, that, that's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so so I, I just I just think you you're absolutely right. It, it's it's not that one one person has to do all the work proving mm. their version of reality is true. It's yeah, that we've that's all right. got a version of reality and we've all got to hold it up to a you know, to critical analysis and, and ask yeah. each other questions and see what makes most sense in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and that's the sense in which we're all in it together and we all got to figure it out together. And yet where apologetics then becomes more specifically helpful for some people would be to say, just believe me when I say there is a pile of books on this side as well. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And, and for me, uh, apologetics is is not so much about saying, here's a bulletproof cast iron set of arguments that mean you yeah, can absolutely, yeah, exactly. you know, just, you know, be a Christian. It's, it's, it's more about saying, well, look, there's enough here mm. to mean that it's reasonable to mm. take a step of faith and place your trust in Jesus Christ. It's, it, it, you're not a, Dane a brain dead, you mm. know, simpleton. <laughs> if you decide mm. to do yeah, that, totally. there's, there's yeah, a yeah. kind of, but ni neither, but I'm, I'm not going to say you're an idiot for not doing that because I mm. can understand fully why, you know, clever, mm. wise people have not decided to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, but in the end, as you say, it, it's about saying it does give you an intellect. It makes Christianity a credible intellectual option for people, but mm. it's not as though that stops you having to, as you say, take that step of faith, that sort of, um, because we do that, whatever system we we ultimately put our trust in yeah absolutely and i, re I really like how how you're speaking about all this justin I, th I think for some people and to be honest my myself to some extent especially as i've journeyed along faith is to actually go ah, you know sometimes i wonder i wonder if it isn't so much apologetics per se that sometimes needs critiquing but just how we engage in apologetics or some of the framework that we put around it you know if we understood as we said so far um, that it's not about kind of giving us, you know, 110% proof, but it's about 
giving some street credibility. And the other point that we made earlier that it's not just about hyper-rationalism, but it's it's recognizing that there is a life in the mind that comes alongside as well beauty and and kind of these other elements as well. Um, I think often some of the people who have been burnt by apologetics or have spoken to has been based on a more truncated view or perhaps a a way of doing apologetics as opposed to apologetics per se. Because actually, when when you get down to it, people still have lively debates, you know, over beer. <laughs> you know, even if they're critical of apologetics, they're still in the pub somewhere, yeah. you know, and discussing the deep things of life. And so people are interested in these big questions. It's just how we go about these big questions or perhaps different ways of engaging these big questions. Um, one thing I do want to ask, though, is, and we've kind of touched on it a little bit, um, and that is that sometimes for people who have been burnt by apologetics, it has come across because people have been overly angry <laughs> or, or very mm-hmm. kind of too argumentative in the more mm-hmm. um, kind of mean-spirited way. Um, and I think some people do ask the validity of if, if there's actually even credibility in such a method of engaging in conversation with people. I mean, I think your your show models something quite different, which I'm, I'm thankful for. But I don't know, would, would there be a way of, of doing the apologetics that, I don't know, it doesn't seem so defensive or, or anything like that. I, I find that, uh, yeah, it, even reframing how we use the word defensive. Yeah. I know that's where the word apologia comes yeah. from, but I don't know. I, I just can't imagine the first Christians just kind of yelling and screaming at people. But I, I don't yeah. know. I want to get your point of view on it. <laughs> so much is down to the, the individuals, isn't it? And I find mm. that when I bring a show together, you know, a lot depends on the particular people I choose as to the way the conversation is going to play out. And mm. you just do get your more combative types and you get your more kind of congenial, gracious types. Um, and to that extent, I think you can have sometimes quite dramatic, you know, kind of encounters. And I've nothing against that when you want to have that that element but it might be done, if I'm honest, more for entertainment than maybe for the mm. fruit of, of what comes out of that. Mm. Um, and I think actually the, the encounters that probably count for the most, at least in the person who, who are having the discussion, is when you are getting more of a meeting of minds and a genuine dialogue. Um, mm. And I think that's that's when we you see the show at its best, in all honesty, is, is when you're seeing people who are genuinely listening to each other, yes. not just in there to score apologetic points or debates, you know. Yep. And and I think that's because that's how actually you know the best conversations happen in real life, isn't it? And mm. and you, no one wants to feel like they're just there to kind of be a battering ram for your apologetic arguments. Um, we we want to feel like we're being listened to, and that you know, mm. even if I do have my strongly held convictions about faith, I might be open to reconsidering things or seeing things from your perspective. Um, I think that's only fair if you're wanting the other person to be open to doing that yeah, in the yeah. conversation. So I think mm. I think it's important to do that. Um, and and you know it's it goes back to that old sort of almost cliche now, but the the, the first Peter three fifteen verse, you know, that so often called upon by apologists mm. is always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the reason for the hope that you have. Mm. But then the next verse is, but do this with gentleness and respect. And mm. and I think it is about the way we engage those conversations with gentleness and respect about valuing the other person, seeing them as made in the image of God. They're not just, mm. you know, an argument. They are a, a, a person to be loved and cherished. And mm. um, you're not just treating them as a project or, or all that kind of thing. I think that's, for me, all contained in that gentleness and respect yeah. sort yeah. of part. And so it's as much about how we say things and the way we conduct the conversations as what we actually say. And mm. to that extent, there are better and worse ways of having those conversations. <laughs> and and I think there are some great examples of people who do it really well. You know, mm. people have come on my show and 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 genuinely do that winsome, gracious kind of encounter. And there's been people who have not modeled it so well <laughs> as well. Um, mm. And and I think um, you know, I am the kind of personality who tends to 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 prefer the former. I prefer mm. making friends with people, trying to have a kind of genuine relationship with people and I feel like honestly I have developed a relationship you know a friendship with a lot of the the non-christian mm. listeners and guests who have come on the show over the years and mm. I'm not and I don't sort of 
I, I value the friendship. I don't just think of this as a, well, maybe one day this will result in them converting or something. It, I, I mm. genuinely want to feel like actually, no, I, I enjoy being around these people. I, I, you know, we, we do disagree, uh, but mm. um, I'm going to treat them with respect and engage and just, just treat them, you know, as people made in the image of God. And, yeah. and so that yeah. for me, that for me is just as important, you know, as, as we do this to, 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 to treat people the right way, whether or not we think we've, we've won an argument or not. So, yeah. 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 I, I think that's a really good, good way to, to frame it because I think often, yeah, when it is coming across as a, a, a type of defensiveness, I guess, because I mean, you, we could say that there is something about the word defensive you know, to be defending the faith. So quote unquote, so to speak in, in the, in the Greek word, but having said that, um, if we look at the way Jesus himself, what, what it means for Jesus to be quote unquote defending himself, you know, it, he seems to be more like um, to use a metaphor I've, I've used before in the in the context of mission more broadly, um, to rather than be like birds that somehow force their song upon people, what would it be like to just to be birds who sing their song and kind of draw people in through that? You know, you're neither hiding the way. Um, but then neither do birds shove their song down people's throats. There's something about just kind of a nonchalant, kind of like a, a non-anxious presence, so to speak, in the words of Mark yeah. Sayers, the pastor Mark mm. Sayers, and just go, you know what? I'm just going to just tell the story of 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 Jesus. And as questions emerge, we will have that rich discussion. And I will listen to understand as opposed to just reply and what it yeah. means to do apologetics and that more almost a more contemplative way, I guess, while still engaging with the deep questions. Yeah. Of... And, and I mean, I've often thought that confidence, Christian confidence is, is not actually in being able to hmm. smash someone's argument when they, when they <laughs> bring their objection to you, which hmm. I think is what some people think is what com being confident in your faith is about. It's actually about being able to hear a very cogent objection to Christianity and not have that kind of knee jerk response of, I need to, demolish this now or, or kind of mm. give them some perfect zinger response but being able to say great question i'm not sure um let mm. me let me go and think about that and get back to you you know yeah. not to kind of treat it all as a kind of you know zero sum you know winner takes all game but to just be confident that god's got this uh, and you yeah. don't have all the answers and that's fine and that's just the way normal life goes i think there's actually a lot more confidence in being able to say sometimes i don't know Mm. Um, and the humility that that involves than, than sort of trying to pretend you do know something that you don't necessarily really know. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, I think you're right. It's, it's about having that exactly as you say, that non-anxious kind of presence or confidence that, mm. that actually just makes, you know, those conversations a lot more human in, in that way. Yeah. 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 You're not going into just win an argument. You're actually yeah. trying to build a relationship and all mm. that comes with that. Um, I'm aware of the time, and so I want to be mindful of your your time, Justin. So perhaps just one more question, and that is, what what are some of the questions that you are starting to notice in the world of apologetics? But have you seen a shift, I guess, I'm, I'm curious, especially maybe amongst Gen Zs or millennials? Are, are there different apologetic questions you've seen emerging over the years? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And to be honest, we could do another whole hour on this alone. <laughs> um, so, so this will be a very truncated answer, but for sure, but definitely. Yeah. I mean, as as I said at the beginning, the show was kind of birthed in the the heyday of the new atheism. But to, to a large extent, that movement is a shadow of its former self and mm. kind of imploded in in many ways. Um, mm. I'm actually um, going to be publishing a book next year called "The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God." And it sort of tells the story of how new atheism kind of imploded and the birth of a new conversation that I think is happening among public mm. intellectuals. So people like, as the aforementioned Tom Holland, um, people like Jordan Peterson and Douglas Murray and Ian McGilchrist and others who I find are now ready to look again mm. at the Christian story and ask, yeah. did we throw the baby out with the bathwater? Can we mm. survive in the West without the Christian story? What do we do mm. in the absence of that narrative? Because we see a lot of competing stories now. Mm. And it's not as though scientific materialism has somehow made the world this utopia. It, it's, if anything, it's kind of stripped people of a kind of sense of who they are and what the meaning or purpose of life is. And to that extent, I think there's a whole new set of questions. It's, we're less 
we're less commonly being confronted in culture now with the, the kind of simple binary does god exist or not type questions it's mm. people are much more asking how do i make sense of life uh how mm. do i live a flourishing life is christianity or faith good for us or bad for us yes those yes. are the kinds of questions i'm encountering more among yep. millennials and gen z mm. and, an, and an interesting openness again interestingly to christianity a lot a lot of people i think are have kind of got over the whole new atheist phase a bit now. And mm. they're actually, I'm actually seeing a kind of an interesting openness in some quarters to the Christian story, not least, mm. as I say, among these public intellectuals who are now kind of almost, you know, asking the questions themselves um, and, and acting a little bit like apologists in the popular culture. Mm. Um, and so I think there's an interesting, yeah, shift in, in the conversation, in the questions, um, and I think the church needs to be ready for that. Mm, I, I'm not yeah. sure it is entirely. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we're still answering the questions from 2005 yes, rather than the yeah. questions from from 2022. And yes. I, I I would love to see us be more ready for for that. Yes. So that's kind of a little bit why I've no, that's, published this book. To, yeah. Oh no, that's very yeah. fascinating. Um, I, I I deeply resonate with that. I mean, a lot of the conversations I've had with whether it be skeptical friends or even um, Christian friends who are going through deconstruction, which is a whole other podcast episode as well, <laughs> talking about that. Often, to summarize, it's often the question that I think you're alluding to around the good life. And I've heard it framed like this from a friend of mine quite poignantly when he was just like, why would I be a Christian when I've got good mindfulness and well-being yeah. techniques and I've got my political zeal in, in this particular side of mm. politics? I was just like... Mm. Yes, this is this is fascinating. It is the the psychological and the political, and actually, people yeah. want to know what does it look like to be. Well, and I think a really good way of looking at it is like, yeah, what does it look like for the Christian faith to be a completely alternative way of being in the world, both in terms of psychology mm. as well as politics as well. So I think, anyway, yeah. I, the, these are rabbit trails for another time, Justin. Um, but yeah. but but nonetheless, really really exciting actually to to see these conversations move forward, especially in the context of your show. And um, look, I'll be as I said, encouraging people to certainly look at Unbelievable as well as the other myriad of shows you've got, as well as your own book and and the like. And so I'll be sending people the links for that and explaining that after after we finish today um but justin it's been such a such a privilege having you on the show um thank you oh, so thank much you, for Nathan. being here oh well bless you thanks for inviting me on and uh yeah maybe we can pick up those rabbit trails next time indeed thank you very much god bless well, that was Justin Briley, host of the unbelievable radio show and podcast on premier christian radio the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast, and is the Theology and Apologetics editor for Premier Christian Radio. For more information on Justin and his work, follow him on his Twitter at UnbelievableJB, Instagram at Justin.Briley, or Facebook at Briley.Justin. Or, you know, just search up Justin Briley on any of those accounts. And finally, he is also found at JustinBriley.com. Thanks for listening to Deeper and Wider. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe and share far and wide. If you want to get to know me, then follow me on Instagram at Nathan underscore Forster or look me up at NathanForster.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next time.